Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, everyone. Before we begin, just a content warning that we are going to be be discussing Me Too and sharing some of our own personal experiences relating to sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace and otherwise. So please be mindful about any triggering material and listen accordingly. Hey, guys. Welcome to Punching Out. I am Lou. I'm joined this week by Rachel. Hi, everyone. And Mev. Hello. And Emily. Hi, everybody. Happy to be here. And this week we are revisiting Me Too. Um, Back in 2018, we recorded an episode um, together where we discussed Me Too, its impacts on work, the personal impacts that it has on our lives, things we can do. There was a lot in that episode. We strongly recommend going to check it out. It's number 41. Yeah, if number you're trying 41 to find on it. our list. Um, but given that it's been three years and given that there is all sorts of developments uh, in, in our state in particular, but also around the country as far as the progression of Me Too, um, we thought it was a high time we came back and revisited this. Yeah, we left off at the end wanting to focus more on the future of Me Too. Where do we want to see this you know, sort of burgeoning movement going? talking about the difference between sort of an awareness campaign and a true movement and the need for a true movement to address some of these systemic problems. So we did cover quite a lot in that first episode that aired three years ago. It's hard to believe that it's been three years of unpacking all this stuff. And um, yeah, it's number 41. We're now on number 132. You can find it on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts if you would like to revisit it. It's a really excellent episode, if I do say so myself. Um, But we were talking at that time, the Harvey Weinstein stuff had just come out. We mentioned that and the Bill Cosby stuff, but Brett Kavanaugh had not happened yet. That was actually in the fall, I remember, of that year. Um, And it's just been a nonstop onslaught. I don't know. What do you you all feel? (laughs) About the three years since then. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like every day there's a new story. And I guess it just kind of proves what we already know as socialist feminists, which is that the system that we're living in is sexist and women are treated differently than men. Of course, we know this. It has been a trying couple of years. I personally had a super super hard time during the Kavanaugh hearings. Me too. It it brought up a lot of stuff for me and made work really hard to even just be there while that was going on. It was um, devastating. It was- yeah, absolutely. And the results, the outcome, of course, is not what we wanted. Right. And it, that seems to be kind of a reoccurring theme with a lot of these stories is the outcome is not what we would hope for. 
Yeah. So that's why we felt the need for this episode to, you know, kind of close it out with some collective imaginings on what would we like to see instead? And what does justice really look like? Before we get to that point, I think it's important to talk about some critiques and shortcomings of Me Too, which is, yes, where we're already getting to, like, what's changed? What's remained the same? Have we made any progress? Are things any better? Are Where are we at? I think what's interesting is that as a society, it seems like every time we take one step forward, we take two steps back. Because um, I do feel like we have made some some steps forward, right? Like the fact that Bill Cosby was convicted, the fact that Harvey Weinstein was found guilty. Like we we do have these steps that are taking place, um, but it seems to move at such a slow rate. Like I remember Brett Kavanaugh too, and that whole thing was it was, it was heartbreaking. And it was like, you're watching this woman on the screen and it's like, you don't know, you, you, you don't know her, but you do. Right. You, you've, you've, you're either her or you've been in her position before. Right. And I think that's part of the reason why watching that hearing was so devastating because we know, or we've been in that position where, oh, I can't do anything because nothing's going to to happen. And you look at how these how these people are revictimized within the um, within the court system, you know, and how they have to prove themselves. Like that's right. that's the worst part of the whole thing is not being believed. Her word against his, and listening mm-hmm. to the like conversations happening outside. I don't know about you all, but like. I was working in the hospital at the time and just listening to like, it was on TV in the hospital. Um, You know, the patients were watching it, their families were watching it. And then listening to the sort of flippant things that people were saying about her and about her character and about the validity of her story and making these snap judgments about how she was trying to ruin a good man's life and all this stuff that was just just soul crushing. Like it was really hard for me. You know, I'm not supposed to in that environment talk about quote unquote controversial things, but there were several moments where I I had to address it. I could not stay silent and listen to this. And I tried to do it in the most compassionate way. And I actually had some good conversations with people where usually it involved me sharing my own story with them and saying, listen, this is a really hard thing that she's doing. And she is basically completely vulnerable. And so for people to automatically assume that, you know, her only goal is to destroy a good man's life is not fair. It's just, and it's not right and it's not accurate. So having some of those really difficult conversations was a little bit healing, but it was also really hard and triggering all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, myself, personally, I'm really bad at the hard conversations. So finding yourself in a situation where someone's making a comment like that, where you vehemently disagree with what they're saying. But for me, it's like the speaking up is so difficult. And I think that's part of why during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings when um, Dr. Ford was telling her testimony was that she's speaking up and it 
was kind of like she's speaking up for all of us. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's what made it so powerful and so emotionally draw like drawing you in, you know? Yeah. That yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um I I am sad to admit that I'm probably going to be the uh huge Debbie Downer of this episode. Um <laughs> and I have a lot of anger about a lot of this. Um because for for every Dr. Ford that people left of the Republicans, let's say, say that we should believe and we need to believe all women. That's what Me Too started is you need to believe all women when they say there's a problem. And that's that's the only way we can have progress is if you actually do that. But in the past three years, we've started to see things fizzle out in that because for every person that we should believe, then there's a Tara Reid who uh, accused um, President Biden of sexual harassment and assault. And the entire story around that was, well, no, it's not credible. And as exactly as Rachel said, this is uh, somebody's trying to destroy this person's life. Uh, this man made one, one mistake. That's all. It doesn't matter how many women come forward or how many other people come forward to see that there is a problem, that this has happened to them. It's a yeah. pattern that this isn't good enough or it's not credible because of X, Y, Z, or basically because they don't want to believe it's true. And right. in the past three years, that has happened more and more. Like every single new case we have that comes up, especially if they're Democrat, let's be honest. Yeah. It's we can't believe it. And it's frustrating. It's not surprising. I'm not surprised in the least, uh, given how we understand this country to work. But yeah, I'm mad as hell. Yeah. It. I think and, you have every reason to be. Well, and not only is it that they don't it part of it is, oh, we don't want to acknowledge it. Or if it did happen, it's not as bad as the other side. Like I saw there was this really gross, gross comment. Um, you know, social media can be a very fun, gross place sometimes. Um, that was talking about like, oh, well, you know, there are six people who said that Trump sexually assaulted them. And so Cuomo's not nearly as bad. Mm -hmm. And one of the comments on that article was he didn't even grab them by the insert, you know, everybody knows the phrase at this point. And I'm like, and, and it was a man. And uh -huh. I'm like, do you not see why it's, and I called him out. I was like, can we not do that? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm quoting, you know, I'm quoting Trump. And I'm like, him saying it the first time was gross and you yeah. perpetuating it is it's, still gross. Right. Like just because you're putting it in quotes doesn't make it okay. What you're any better. Um, it was like, <sighs> And then with this whole thing, like I said, with Cuomo, it's like he's either not as bad or, oh, it's it. Right. he wouldn't do that. They're just trying to drag him because his coronavirus. Uh, right. He was so good with corona. Um, Aside when, from lying about all the people who, yeah, died from nursing homes that he didn't count and deliberately covered up. So, you know. Exactly. But what sort of low bar are we setting here? Like. Basically right. saying that, well, he's not the worst. Is that an acceptable position to put somebody in when they have that much power and responsibility to to rule the rest of us and to make decisions for, you know, how we're governed, that he's not the worst? Yeah, it makes me think of the phrase like oppression Olympics, where people yeah. 
compete to, you know, who is more oppressed. And with this whole Me Too movement, it seems like there's this Olympics of how bad was it? You know, right. anything that wasn't forcibly, you know, penetrative penis and vagina sex <laughs> is seen as not that bad. And I think that kind of happened with the Kavanaugh hearings and it's happening now with Andrew Cuomo and, you know, all of these other stories that we keep hearing um, is people saying, well, it wasn't that bad, you know, it wasn't rape. So it wasn't that big of a deal and you need to just let it blow over, move on, you know, how much time has gone past, you need to move past it. Like all of those things that we hear over and over again, are just it's so devastating and I really I echo a lot of loose anger on this subject is you know t- things are moving forward like Mev has said but they're not mo- moving forward fast enough for a lot of us <laughs> yeah and there's still a lot of you know lack of empathy and compassion for subjective experiences that like something we touched on quite a bit in our previous episode on this subject was how do we empower subjective experiences without, you know, there's going to be multiple sides of a story and how can you make sure that you validate and empower without actively oppressing and disempowering others? Like, is there a way to hold these things together? And I think our culture, especially like the nuance of like the range of unacceptable or unconsensual or inappropriate experiences that we have all witnessed or experienced ourselves. Absolutely. We can't equate all of these things as equal, but that doesn't mean that they weren't harmful. And that doesn't mean that they didn't do damage to us in a, in a long-term way that we hold all these experiences with us as we age and that they affect us and our ability to connect with other people moving forward in our lives. So like, just because it's not the worst doesn't mean that it wasn't bad or it wasn't hard or it wasn't traumatic. Mm -hmm. So how, yeah, how can we have a more nuanced conversation? And, and honestly, that's something I've still been struggling with, you know, since our episode three years ago and, I don't know. I don't know quite how to work on that because it seems like it's a cultural shift that, and mm-hmm. it's a paradigm shift that we are really wanting and needing in order to basically treat everybody with dignity and respect as fully human, fully actualized human beings that are deserving of empathy and compassion in our society. That doesn't sound like it should be so hard, right? (laughs) (laughs) Rachel, I think you really get at at the fact, uh, at how our justice system as it works now is lacking in in being able to not only address what's going on because we do see things in such like a black and white way, but also the justice system, it's it's punitive, um, it's re-traumatizing. And in the case like with uh, with Harvey Weinstein, right, now they have to prove like, yes, he's guilty, but now the victims that came that, – that were a part of this suit, they now have to play the oppression Olympics yeah. um, and prove, you know, who who was damaged more by this man 
And therefore, that's how they're going to assign them the monetary compensation, which honestly, the fact that like we solve these problems by giving throwing money at them mm-hmm. is a problem in and of itself. But um, it's it's not just the legal system. This is 100 percent something we need to work at on a cultural level, on a family level, on a society level, every level yeah, and- <laughs> pervasive. Yeah. The, the fact that it, it is. Like we all, just like with uh, every workplace that tries to solve racism by having, uh, uh, you know, anti-racism training, we we try to just throw money at it. We try to just throw training at it and, and think that awareness is all that it'll take in order to solve these problems of don't harass your, your coworkers or literally anybody. Stop it. Um, yeah, just but stop. He's, yeah, How just, hard just is don't that? do just it. Just stop. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to tell you what it, it is. We're going to we're going to just tell you to stop it. <laughs> exactly, but the, but the, the the fact that it is a hard problem, and the fact that I think as a culture we or as a country we have decided that if we pursue Me Too to the degree that it seemed to have started as pursuing of actually toppling some men's careers, uh, other men have recovered just fine. Al Franken's doing great. He's uh, hanging in there for sure. Um, he didn't go to jail. He just lost his job. And now he's got another job doing something else. I really don't care. This could affect. And I think the men in power understand that this could literally affect them, that nobody is not guilty of this sin in some capacity, um, that there's been too far, far, far too long, a pervasive culture Mm -hmm. that allows for power imbalances and harassment to occur that anybody could fall from it. Yeah. I think that's probably the biggest reason why we've seen slowly, very quietly stepping back from pursuing it because the consequences for too many people mm-hmm. could completely change the social order, basically, if we actually pursued it. So we can't because that would be too much. Going back to the the question of our culture and, you know, how embedded this is, as I was preparing for this episode, um, my partner and I, we've been rewatching the show Modern Family, Mm. which, you know, it's a family show. It's right in the name. Like, it's for the whole family to watch, right? And just watching some of those episodes, there's multiple instances of sexual assault that happen right in that show. Like, there's an episode where the teenage girl, Alex, gets kissed by another boy who just kisses her out of the blue. And then it turns into like, oh, it was this flirty little thing. And, oh, she kind of likes him, you know, now that he he forcibly kissed her without her permission. That sort of is how the story progresses. And then in the same episode, there's a man who grabs Gloria's behind without asking her. He's not her husband. He's a random guy on a vacation that they're on. And the conversation never even happens of like, this was something that is assault. (laughs) Like it just is kind of brushed over and treated almost like it's a funny thing. It's kind of a romantic thing. Um, It happens again in another later episode with this random guy that's meeting with Claire and Phil. Um, He's trying to sell a house and this guy just randomly kisses Claire on the lips. Like, doesn't ask her husband standing right there and it happens right in front of him 
and nothing happens. And the conversation is never had about this guy just kissed you without asking on the lips, you know? Yeah. How inappropriate. These things, like I said, it's, it's a family show and kids are watching this and Mm -hmm. kids are seeing that as their example of like, Oh, it's okay to kiss people without asking. Right. It happens all the time in, in media. I mean, we're bombarded with that crap. Right. All the time from the earliest ages. We're supposed to like from like Pretty in Pink and all those other movies, like we're supposed to be endeared by stalker behavior. You Mm -hmm. know, when we tell them no, it's supposed to be very endearing for them to just pursue us, even though we're not interested. Although I will say, as annoying as it is and as gross as it is, there's still non consensual kissing going on. Um television i will say what is it if you look back in the 1980s with revenge of the nerds he he rapes her you know he he's in his his darth vader costume and she thinks that that's her boyfriend and like Mm. that's supposed to be funny you know like oh it's the yeah the it's the geeks who are getting back at the the cheerleader girl and like this is the way he hooks up with the cheerleader girl and now she's like oh like the geeks are so much better than the jocks i don't know i've never actually seen it but i've seen it either it sounds like i don't want to (laughs) yeah i don't i don't want to see it i know i probably should i'm big into film and i've i've even seen cannibal holocaust don't watch that if you if you're triggered by there's there's at least three sexual assault scenes and this is in the seventies. Like as gross as it is now, when you look at how bad it was just 30, 40 years ago. And of course I'm not trying to say, Oh, look at how far we've come. We're not that bad. Like, no, it's still awful and we need to move faster. But when you look at where we were not that long ago, I don't even know if it's a progress progression or if it's just changed. Yeah, I, I just just as a quick disclaimer, I think any rom com like eh, no, basically ever you could. That's an excellent point. Um, there's there's sexual assault in literally all of them. I think one of the Molly Ringwald ones where I think it's Sixteen Candles. I don't know. They're all the same. Um, same plot. Yeah, <laughs> same plot. And like, yeah, that's a good point. But at the same time, like, yes, things have changed in the degree to which the grossness has probably decreased um, or at least the acceptable grossness, but that's still the same conversations that we're having. And it's still, you know, from the seventies and the nineties and um, what's his face? Clarence Thomas, Thomas. Yeah. What's his name on the Supreme court Mm -hmm. and, and his hearings when he was being confirmed. Anita Anita Hill, Anita Hill, who by the way, biggest person uh, against her, um, one Joseph R. Biden or whatever he wants. Yeah. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like the same characters show up and it's the same conversations and we keep doing this. And it's exactly as Mev said earlier, it's one step forward, two steps back. And it's frustrating. It's really it frustrating. is very frustrating to keep having to have this conversation every 20 years when, when something blows up. Um, it's better than it was for sure. Mm-hmm. It's uh, some progress, but it is insufficient. One, yeah. One, one thing that I will say that had came from me too, 
is now everybody in New York State has to take anti-sexual harassment training. Mm-hmm. I just did it. I just did it this week. Me too. I also hashtag me too. I also <laughs> very good. Yeah, it's it's a it's not the worst. It, it wasn't like I so apparently like there's a certain number of different um, aspects to the training that you have to include and there has to be an interactive aspect to it. So my boss had us do the New York City training because it was inclusive of the interactive aspect as well. And yeah, because we're working remotely right now, she thought that would be easier than trying to actually engage me in any sort of way. Um, So it was... It was better than I anticipated. I guess I thought, you know, thinking back to like the dare days of school or whatever, that there would be really hokey videos that were, were, I don't know, like woefully inadequate. That's, I guess, what I had the lowest expectations. And so, you know, the, the scenarios that were portrayed were pretty, pretty good. They were fairly diverse. I mean, there were definitely... The thing that was lacking, I felt, most of all, was, so what do we do about it? And I think it it gets back to like the whole reason for this episode is like, okay, if we can agree that all of these scenarios are inappropriate, but we don't necessarily talk about how to address them and what needs to happen moving forward to prevent them, except... You know, they they talked about how you could, you know, managers and supervisors could be fined or have fees. Um, so all these monetary, like basically capitalist money related. Yeah, capitalistic solutions to, you know, systemic problems that like how does this help internalize any sort of different behavior? How does this change the culture of oppression that has been so entrenched for so long so i i was just left kind of like with big question marks about like i don't know how this training necessarily helps people understand what needs to happen instead well my favorite joke is didn't wasn't Cuomo the one who pushed for this training in the first place? Like, did he actually take this training? Because based off of this training, he should have understood that his actions were not appropriate. Um, As he says, let's talk to the experts, focus on what the experts are saying. Well, we know what the experts are saying, Cuomo. And if you've really been following them, then you would have known that you weren't doing what you should have been doing. Or maybe he's an expert on harassment and therefore... (laughs) He should be consulted for all the things not to do. Although, you know, the the thing that like with everything unfolding about his conduct and just the, the toxicity of the workplace that he like seems to, yeah, deliberately cultivate um, surrounding himself with young, attractive women so that he can, yeah, be predatory and disgusting towards them and, yeah, use his power for for nefarious purposes, making everybody uncomfortable and afraid. Um, well, yeah. And I also want to give a shout out. Um, uh, Lisa Nolan from the Willow Domestic Violence Center and Nicole Hushla-Ree, fra- who's a, a Western New York-based political consultant, they were talking about how 
all of this stuff shows a pattern of behavior. So it's not yeah. necessarily about how bad the behavior was like, oh, yeah, well, Cuomo didn't actually, you know, physically uh, rape somebody. So it's not so bad because he just put his hand on someone's back. Like, okay, but he did this behavior with multiple women over time. And then you also look at how he's how he's um, treated his other employees. You look at um, some of his other employees who have come out saying that he's just bullying them. And these are men that are saying this. Um, So, and I like, uh, I just don't want a leader who's a bully, you know? Yeah. Or consistently toxic, you know? Yeah. That's not a good uh, role model. Like, I wouldn't want to have a politician who I wouldn't want to be my boss, you know? So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, why capitalism is why we're here and what we can do in the future to make life better for all of us. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. And we're back from the break here with Emily, Mev, Rachel, and Lou. So we were talking a little bit about um, the Me Too movement and consequences of people's bad actions. And so we wanted to look at how capitalism is at the root of all of our problems. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Yeah. I, I mean, we were talking about how most of the solutions, like any sort of ideas of accountability that are being offered by our you know, quote unquote, criminal justice system are monetary, you know, fees, fines, and that basically that privileges rich, powerful people to be able to pay out and not take any responsibility for their actions. And also like force, Mev, you were talking about the Weinstein settlement that is, yeah, trying to be repealed, right? Or upheeled. Um, by the survivors because um, they're being asked to sign these agreements that basically if they take any money, which they also have a limited pool of money among which they have to fight for, like who's had the worst harm done to them and how much are they entitled to of that money. And then they also have to agree that they won't take it further, you know, that that money is hush money for the rest of their lives. And some of the survivors are cool with that. And some of them are not. Um, And it sounds like um, they're being pressured into this decision that they, or at least some of them are being pressured into a decision that they do not agree with because they would like to pursue this further. And I also wonder if even the ones who are, as you say, like cool with it, if it's basically like the best they think they're going to get. Like, and glad to get anything at all. I definitely, I'm sure there's a lot of that going on. And I, and 
to a certain extent, I can't entirely blame them no. for that, especially no. depending on what sort of what sort of situations they're in and with the legal right. fees. I just think it's nuts that as part of this whole settlement, Harvey Weinstein's uh, legal teams, that their fees are going to like, that's part of it. Like they're getting money out of this. Like that's ridiculous. They're making money from him sexually traumatizing all of these women. And aren't they making more money than the actual pool of settlement money for these women? Yes. It's like twice as much going to the lawyers as it is to all the victims. And survivors. And, and that's the thing, though, and that's that's one of the mechanisms that I do feel is built into the system of how can you, like, there is a level of moral hazard in here of the bad actors essentially being able to get away with um, reaping whatever benefits of this system they is, in this case, being able to harass others with very few consequences Um, and all of the costs of this are on other people in this case the victims of this Um, and we talked about it in the episode last week when we were talking about um, service workers being the ones that are primarily responsible for enforcing mask mandates and everything Mm -hmm. in COVID is people like to use fines because it's considered a punishment and a just punishment because we have to be punitive and at every level. But one thing we, I don't know if we discussed in depth there is that fines. Yeah. They only affect people who can't afford them in the first place. Yeah. Really? They're rich enough. Yeah. Punitive to poor people. Yeah. If you're rich enough to afford the fine without it doing it, basically that is just the fee you have to pay in order to, participate in that act yeah destroy people's lives yeah and and we have a a culture that is punitive and we are obsessed with police and policing um just like every time you start talking about defunding the police and getting rid of policing as we know it um one of the first things that they mention in in counter to that is well if somebody rapes you what are you gonna do and (laughs) Like, like the police are going to do anything about it anyway, but there's gotta be another way. I mean, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be consequences for some of these things. Um, we certainly accept what is going on too readily, I think. Um, but I, I don't, I'm not convinced that any current justice that we have under capitalism is going to work. So, We also started talking a little bit um, in the break about cancel culture slash consequences culture slash call out culture and whether like, is that a viable form of sort of populist justice or not? Like if our legal system isn't doing an adequate job, is that a stand in or, you know, does it have benefits What do you all think? I mean, I think it does have benefits when it's, I guess, used appropriately. Um, But that's kind of a hard thing to judge, I would say. But I do find it kind of funny how, like, you see right-wing news outlets and stuff talking about cancel culture as if it's, like, this horrible thing. Like, it's, 
it's what Gen Z is doing to to get rid of the boomers and Gen X and whoever else. Like <laughs> they hate the term cancel culture. You know, they're all against it. And on the left, we kind of see it a little more like Rachel mentioned consequences culture, you know, holding people accountable for their actions. And I think it's just funny to look at the the phrasing and how mm-hmm. it's interpreted differently depending on kind of where your politics are anyway. But I do think canceling someone, quote unquote, um, can be useful. I think getting rid of platforms for hatred and vitriol and disgusting sexist rhetoric um, is a good thing. I, I think the more that we allow those people to have a platform, the, the further their message spreads. So I do think it's a good idea sometimes to cancel people. Uh, but I think there's also a fine line, which I think is kind of where people on the right get mad is like, what is freedom of speech? And how that applies to, you know, this topic in general. Well, uh, and I can, I, I understand that in coming from the point of view, like it's one thing if a bunch of people go after Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby, or I'm trying to think of somebody younger, but I can't right now. But, Andrew Cuomo? Um, <laughs> I was thinking a little younger than that. Actually, uh, going back way further back, Aziza Sari. Aziza Sari, when that whole thing happened, right? Mm-hmm. Like, different because he's used to having over a thousand people or so interacting with him on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Mm-hmm. But when your average Joe all of a sudden is thrust into the spotlight, like that, that can be a very traumatic experience. And it's one thing if it's a person who's like, you know, it's a pattern of behavior versus like a 17 year old who said one stupid thing when they were a stupid teenager. Um, So there's, you know, know, there's different, that's, I think that's a big problem with cancel culture and with our criminal justice system is everything is, it's black and white. It's you're either evil or you're good. You're a bad person or you're a good person. It's not like you're you're a person who has a tendency to to mess up sometimes or like you're a everybody who, yeah or yeah. you're a person who is socialized to put women down and that you were you were socialized to you know some of these men think that this behavior is okay because they've been taught it their entire life and i think that's part of the reason why you have some of these older generation that's fighting back against it so much because then they have to look at themselves and their behavior and be like right? oh like i was a person mm-hmm. um and they didn't, you know maybe they didn't realize it which you know like you can't see me but i'm rolling my eyes a little bit but um yeah reevaluate all of your past behavior based on a changing notion of what is and what is not acceptable in terms yeah, of how we that, treat each other that totally upends your I, your sense of self and your right? self sense of right and wrong and that can be very difficult for people to face which is why Um, people get so defensive so quickly yeah for me a problem with like we talked about before like the lack of nuance um you know equating all these things as equally terrible and you know deserving of similarly harsh consequences for me the the big thing like Mev, your point about how like we're all marinating in this culture 
that tells us that this behavior is acceptable in images, in words, in messaging, in songs. I mean, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous all the time. And so, like you said, like nothing surprises me anymore. Um, Like it's not surprising, but it's still harmful and it's still devastating all the time. So for me, there needs to be room for atonement and cancel culture or consequences culture, any sort of, you know, call out culture. Like it's basically pointing the finger, but it doesn't leave room for people to like take responsibility and then learn and internalize a new behavior and atone for the damage that they've done in any sort of proactive way. It's, it's similarly punitive. And sometimes the consequences seem so harsh and devastating that like, I honestly wonder sometimes like your example of, you know, somebody who said something stupid as, as it happens, like in, in ignorance and when we're young and when we're learning and depending on what sort of upbringing you've had and what sort of exposure you've had. And you can realize later that something was really horrible and really damaging but not really be given any opportunity to make up for it or to show that you've changed or that you've learned and grown in the time since. And I think that that can even like reinforce bad behavior by like causing people to double down on it in anger and defensiveness. And I worry about that too. Like, does, is it a shockwave because of, the cancel culture and call out culture that like causes people to cling on to the bad behavior out of spite or because they're resentful of how devastating the consequences were and they feel like they've been wronged publicly. Yeah. And uh, your point about taking responsibility for that, that, that I think is key Um, because you're exactly right. There is a, a tendency to, like try to victimize people who have made other people victims in, in the cancel culture. And I think that's why what people react to a lot and why there's the anti cancel cancel culture or whatever we want to call it. Uh, it's just too many negatives. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know what's going on. Uh, but double trickle <laughs> negatives. <laughs> yes. It's, it's just a mess and somebody should sort it out. Uh, well, that's what we're doing here today, right? But we're going to sort it all out. Exactly. In the next we're gonna 15 s- minutes. So if everybody would listen to Punching Out <laughs> on Wayo, uh, we would just solve all the world's problems. And I'm actually not unconvinced of this. So stay tuned. I do believe this. Uh, stay tuned. Yeah. But like taking responsibility for your actions and learning to grow is key to this. And that's really the only way we can change. But so many times you have one side entrenched in defending uh, their idol, um, who is often a politician or somebody. A lot of people, it happens even on the left, where somebody, you know, we admire, like a politician, if you're really into Elizabeth Warren, for example, didn't matter what she did or what, what anything surrounding her, you would defend her no matter mm-hmm. what. And that's true of it, all of them. That's just the one I'm picking in particular. Um, and that's not a healthy behavior. Yeah. Like every single person is human. 
they're gonna make mistakes. They're gonna do things. And we need Mm -hmm. to be willing to point that out and accept criticism, not just of ourselves, but of the people we admire. And that's hard to do because then it might put into question other things and and you need to have strong beliefs and you need to understand yourself. Um, And, and maybe uh, idling people too much is bad. (laughs) Don't do that. Stop stop it. (laughs) Knock it off. I I think we need to get rid of this notion of good people and bad people, right? Where you're people and we're fallible. Like some of us have a tendency to do more nefarious stuff than others. And of course, all of us have different def- definitions of what nefarious is. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause well, we can get into philosophical moral relativity relativity. And That's but another we won't do that. <laughs> that's another conversation. <laughs> but, but that's, that's the whole thing. It's like, if you keep putting people in these boxes, we're not going to go anywhere. And Mm -hmm. yeah, my contention has always been that if, if that reactionary impulse to cancel somebody for having done harm to another person continues, then eventually we're all canceled. And granted, like that's also assuming that we equate all harm as equally harmful and we don't allow for that sort of nuance to happen where, you know, the subjective experiences of people are empowered to differing degrees. And because I do also think intention matters. Like there's a lot of gray area in here too. I think we've probably all had experiences where we were harmed by something that somebody did or somebody said. And when we attempted to confront them about it or talk to them about it. They were shocked because it wasn't at all intended in that way. And Mm -hmm. so I think part of it, like when we're talking about, okay, what needs to happen? What, what does justice actually look like in our perspectives? Like for me, the, the idea of restorative justice practices and having like safe spaces for communication and reconciliation to happen, like truth and reconciliation. I think that's a really, really lovely idea. And I, I aspire to that. I also realize that it is very difficult to do and very difficult to facilitate and that it takes quite a lot of security and a sense of safety to be able to engage in that. And for people to speak to one another honestly and openly, like we were talking Mm -hmm. about, yeah, the difficulty in being vulnerable and how our culture sees vulnerability generally as a weakness and something best avoided. And yet the older I get, the more I realize that like after, after my own experience with assault, I had a crisis of whether or not I could allow myself to continue being vulnerable and then realized that number one, there's really no way to make myself, you know, impenetrable without foregoing like deep, meaningful relationships and connections with other people. And so I kind of just decided like, I'm just going to keep wearing my heart on my sleeve because that's my like natural default and that people are going to hurt me sometimes 
but I know I can survive a lot because I've been through a lot and I'm, I've survived thus far and I've had my heart broken and crushed and I'm still here and, you know, I'm, I'm getting through it. And I also think there's a lot of people who have reverence for that vulnerability and you can connect far deeper than you would be able to otherwise. I think it kind of brings it back to the question of what does justice look like? Because everything is so subjective. You know, if, if there was an incident where um, a woman was sexually assaulted in some way, you know, and she wants justice, but what does that look like for her? Does, does she want the person imprisoned? Does she want them fined? Does she want to leave him alone and let him live his life? Does she, you know, justice looks different to everybody. And that makes this question so difficult is, you know, what, what is good enough for the rest of us, I guess, you know, looking at it from the outside, what, what does justice look like? And it's a complicated question. It's very complex. That's such a good point. Because if you had asked me, for example, like right after the assault, what justice looked like then and how I feel about it now, all these years later, like I, I've had time to deal with all of that anger that I had. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right afterwards I may have said like, I want this person to be tarred and feathered in the public square for all eternity, you know, which I realize now like that doesn't help anything in terms of like getting to the roots of these problems and, and also mm-hmm. like, yeah, doesn't change his behavior moving forward. And yeah, my, my fear about like reinforcing that behavior inadvertently, like the whole idea of an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. I've thought about it a lot since then, like what would actually help? And I do feel like having tried to confront the person who assaulted me, the way that he responded was so typical, you know, basically putting the blame on me and that it was my fault and that, you know, the sort of, yeah, stereotype of, of how that situation unfolds. Um, Like if he had responded differently and taken responsibility at the time and apologized sincerely, I think the load of trauma that I have come away with would be, far less than it is. And so Mm -hmm. I do think, you know, even something as simple as a sincere apology as a start can make a difference, Mm -hmm. but it has to be followed up by something more. And yeah, I think that's something more. You're absolutely right. It's different depending on the context. Context always matters. Always matters. And I know for me personally, with the experience I had with luckily never got to a physical point, but it was very psychologically traumatizing uh, with a supervisor that I had in college. Um, I know for me, when I think about it, it's more, I don't want this person to be able to do that to anybody else. Right. That's, that's like my main, my main thing. Like, (laughs) and I guess that's, I I guess there's something to be said about how us as women, it's like, Oh, well, I don't care about what happened to me, but I want to make sure everyone else is okay. Like that's kind of the, the whole, 
my whole feeling about it is like, I, I don't care about this person. I've processed this for myself and I don't need that person in my life anymore, but I'm worried about the other people that they encounter, the other girls yeah. that are just starting out who are not going to, that are going to be naive like I was and not see the red flags or think that the red flags are actually something to be proud of yeah. because thank you TV movies and everything mm-hmm. I grew up with. Yeah. As we were talking about earlier with like our culture and how ingrained that is in like TVs and TV and movies and, you know, music and things like that. Um, I think women or people who are more often the victims of sexual assault are sort of trained by the media to keep those things quiet. Just like, you know, in those examples that I mentioned from modern family, just like the, the boys and men see, Oh, well it's okay to kiss someone without asking women see, well, after I'm kissed without somebody asking my, for my consent, I'm supposed to act like nothing happened. It's all there. So, I mean, we're, we're almost done with with our time for today, but just real quickly, I just wanted to see where do you guys think we'll still be talking about me too in a year, let alone three years or, or is this the end? I think we will. And I think um, part of the solution, you know, this is a huge problem. And of course, like this isn't going to solve it, but is, creating the media and culture that we want to see. Mm -hmm. So having people who are aware of these social issues create their own TV and their own music and their own movies that show a different side and like creating a consent culture as opposed to the rape culture that we've been living in for decades and decades. And, you know, I really have some hope for, Gen Z and and millennials as well that we are waking up to these issues and we are the people who started me too and we are able to create content that we want to see and I'm hopeful that you know someday <laughs> I'll be watching TV and someone will ask can I mm-hmm. kiss you before they just kiss somebody <laughs> I've seen it I've seen it Yeah I've seen it maybe once. Maybe once I've seen it. Once is better than none. And not enough. That's another thing too is like I don't know if it'll be me too. It, like right. if that's going to be right. what it's called three years from now. But we're 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 going to be talking about this. I mean, Susan B. Anthony and uh, Ida B. Wells. Uh, they were all talking about this. You know, back in what two two hundred years ago. We're still doing dealing with the same stuff, just packaged differently. Yeah. Yeah, I think. You're absolutely right. Like it's taken a long time to get us to this point and to get us into this predicament and debacle and all of these issues have, we've spent a long time marinating in, in various forms of this patriarchy and yeah, rape culture and um, the manifestations might be slightly different, but it's also going to take quite a lot. And it already has taken quite a lot to make any progress and it's going to continue it's a it's a long haul like to change a culture and to change a paradigm is a lot of work and it's yeah tireless sometimes and we all get tired 
Um, but I've also heard a lot of older generations, like my grandmother saying, you know, it's about, it's about time and that she's really mm-hmm. grateful that our generations have stepped forward and been like enough, enough is enough. Like, why are we putting up with this crap? Um, because yeah, she's a feminist too. And I think there were a lot of generations that came before us that felt at a loss for what to do. And now we have a few more tools. I mean, Me Too started as a hashtag and social media has been an invaluable tool to at least raise awareness, but making it a real movement towards something with a concrete goal, unified strategy, that is something that I feel has yet to coalesce. Yeah. I think a huge part of that is how we teach younger generations, you know, do we let them keep watching shows like modern family where people get kissed Mm -hmm. without asking, or do we change the conversation for kids so that they understand that this is not acceptable. You don't touch someone without asking for consent first. I think that's a huge part of changing the paradigm and the conversation to be about consent as opposed to what it is now. Yeah. Education starting at the earliest ages, using all those moments as teachable ones would go such a long way. Because yep. the other thing to keep in mind too is Susan B. Anthony didn't see suffrage, women's right. suffrage. Like that didn't happen during her lifetime. It was the women that were inspired by her work that pushed yeah. it through. So I think as as much as we have a duty to call out what is going on, we also have a duty to raise the next generation to be even better than we were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there are certain problems that we're not going to solve until, you know, certain people die off, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We do not advocate. Oh, yes. No, uh, I meant I, I like, like natural, natural deaths, <laughs> you know. It's just the passing of generation and people, you know, people accepting new things or not being able to accept new things. And sometimes, you know, old people are set in their ways. They're not going to change. So you just wait until the new generation comes and make things better. <laughs> Channeling Ryan for a second, uh, we we at Punching Out do not advocate <laughs> the premature death of uh, generations. Um, normally, that's the one I'm proposing. Uh, anyways, it's time for us to wrap up. Um, we're out of time for today, um, but thank you, ladies, all for your your time. And um, personally, I I hope that I hope that we can continue moving things forward and not backwards. Um, but uh, for this week, I'm, I'm Lou. Rachel. I'm Emily. I'm Mev. And this is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.